Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We're a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into this same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and to reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to uh, 1 John. This morning we begin a new fall series. It's kind of scary to say the word fall in Michigan because after fall comes winter. Um, But... Nonetheless, here we are. We embrace what the Lord has for us, even a beautiful 71-degree day today. Uh, But 1 John is where we are going to be, uh, in a large part, um, from now until the end of October. The end of October, we have our missions conference. That'll be separate. Next week will be separate because uh, Bill Crowder is going to be speaking next week, and so I invite you back for that um, special Sunday. Um, But 1 John is a book that speaks to a lot of things, and what we're going to do this morning in our teaching time before we get to communion and we move towards there, we are, we are going to kind of give you an overview of what is the book of 1 John talking about? Why is it written? To whom is it addressed? And this is kind of designed to be background information for you. Whenever we approach a book of the scripture, it's written to a time, it's written to a place, it, it has a context to it. And understanding those things helps us better understand what the author, and ultimately God, who is the author of all scripture, because all scripture is God-breathed, it helps us understand what God is trying to communicate. And so, just a couple of comments about the book of First John, and then we will study the first few verses together this morning. So, um, just kind of keep your Bibles open to First John chapter 1. And, and I'll kind of give you some direction as we go. Uh, the, fir- the book of 1 John is penned by the Apostle John. Now, John also wrote the Gospel of John, and he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and he wrote Revelation, okay? So he, he's a multi-work um, author, and um, this is largely indisputed uh, for, for most of history. Um, the, the letter has several purposes behind its writing, and we find this by looking in the book itself. Um, so if you've ever... Uh, ever read the book of 1 John, you might come across verses like this. Look with me in chapter 1, verse 3. I'm writing this to you so that you may have fellowship with us. Fellowship is important to John. One of the reasons he writes this book is because of his concern for fellowship. Uh, Another reason or purpose for writing the book is found in verse 4, so that our joy may be complete. John cares deeply about joy and how joy is experienced by the people of God. Um, Chapter 2, verse 1, if you look there, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. All right, another purpose of John's gospel, or not John's gospel, but John's first letter here, is because he he sees sin going on in the community, and he wants to give them instruction and direction so that they may not sin. Um, If you jump down to verses 12, 13, and 14, you'll find the phrase, I'm writing to you little children. And then you'll see in verse 13, I'm writing, writing to you fathers. And then you'll see in, in verse um, uh, 14 again, uh, he, he starts talking about, I'm writing to you children and, and writing to you young men. You see three different groups in those grouping of three verses there, children, fathers, and young men. Now, it's generally understood that when he says, I'm writing to you children, he, he's not just talking about your age. He's talking about 
about you who have just come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah, you who are children in your spiritual condition. You know, you, you, you're children of God, but, but you're young in the faith. You're still learning more of what it means to follow Jesus. And he says, I'm writing to you because your sins have been forgiven. And then he says, I'm writing to you fathers. Fathers is, is a way to refer to those who are spiritually mature. You have walked with God for a long time. And he says, I, I'm writing to you because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And then he says, I'm writing to you young men because you have had victory over the evil one. Young men are those growing adolescents, those, those people who, um, who have been growing in their faith over a course of time. They're not, they're not kids in the faith. They're not fathers or older people in the faith. They're somewhere in between. So he says, I'm, I'm writing to you children. Your sins have been forgiven. Writing to you fathers. You've come to know the one who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have had victory over the evil one. And then he goes... Uh, back again, and he says, I'm writing to you, little children. You have come to know the Father. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers. You have come to know the one who's from the beginning. And he says again, I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. All right? So there's another kind of purpose. He, he's directing this really towards anyone who is a follower of Christ. Whether you are young in the faith or you are old in the faith, the book of 1 John has meaning and application and direction for you in your spiritual life. No one's left out. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 26, you'll notice another purpose. He says, I'm writing to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. One of the things, and I'll talk about this more in a minute, one of the things that's going on that John is addressing is that there's false teachers who have come in and started to try and, and lead people away from the truth of who Jesus is, the truth of what sin is, and the, the truth the truth of what it means to love one another, uh, biblically speaking. And so uh, John wants to address those things. And then finally, if you just flip over a couple pages to chapter 5, verse 13, you'll see a, a very, very big, important <clears throat> reason that John is writing. He says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life so that you may know that you have eternal life. Knowing that you have eternal life is important to John. All right? Eternal life is important to John. If we were to, and we'll, we'll be in the book of the gospel of John for, for a little bit today, but the significant verse in John's gospel, it, towards the end of the book, he says this. He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel is all about who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? I write these things so that you may believe. John's first epistle here is written so that you may know that you have eternal life. See the difference? John's gospel is very evangelistic. If, if you're someone who's kind of kicking the doors of faith today, you're wondering who Jesus is, you're wondering what he has done and why it matters, the, John's gospel is a great place to start because through it you find out truths like, you know, like when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, he, he goes through like all these I am statements, all these I am statements. He goes through all of these miracles that he does that, that kind of declare who he is as the Messiah. The book of the Gospel of John is a great place to start for that, but first John is written so that you may know, 
so that you may know, that you may have confidence, that you may have assurance that you have eternal life. And so John's audience is members in the faith community. And five times he writes to, um, he writes to them and he addresses them this way. It's, it's the Greek word agape toy. And it, and it comes from the word agape, which you may be familiar with. It's a word that means love. And so your translation might say, beloved, I write this to you. Or it might say, dear friends. I, I, I use the, um, the Christian Standard Bible the, or the Holman Christian Standard Bible, I think is the one I have. Um, and, and I think it's a very good translation, but yours, might be different. It might have beloved or it may have dear friends. Um, but the idea behind there is that, that John really cares about the people to whom he's writing. And he cares about them not just on a, like a theory level. He, he yearns for them to follow Jesus deeply. And so he says, beloved, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. I want you to experience that. One of the things that has caused some doubt within the hearers uh, of, of John's letter is that, and I, and I love the way that the New American Commentary uh, series kind of breaks this up. Daniel Aiken does a good job. Uh, he, he breaks it up as, as this, when he starts talking about the false teaching that's being addressed in the book. Um, kind of the central core of the false teaching that he addresses has to do with Jesus, all right? Um, there's people, false teachers who've come in and they've essentially compromised the uniqueness of the person of Jesus. They, 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 have, they have said, he can't really be both God and man, all right? They, they, they've begun to divide Jesus and, and not take him for who he said he was or, or what he was walking on this earth that John actually witnessed. So John's response in the, in the letter of 1 John is that Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God whose death provides the forgiveness of sin. But that's not the only false teaching. There's another one. And it has to do with sin. Uh, There was a minimization of sin. There were some who came in and said, you know, sin's not really a big deal. You really, you don't have to follow that. Um, They they claimed to have fellowship with God, and yet they walked with very unrighteous behavior. And John comes in, and he addresses his friends, his dear ones, his beloved, and and he says, hey, Christianity has ethical implications to it, friends. He he says, fellowship with God leads to or, or requires righteousness. Now, it's not that righteousness is something that you must obtain in and of your own self to have fellowship with God. John makes it very clear that fellowship with God comes through the work of Jesus, the Messiah. But when you have fellowship with God, it leads you to a certain kind of living. So, uh, they, t- they, they want to take sin very seriously, and John kind of hammers that pretty good. Um, and then there's another um, subject that comes up throughout the letter, and it's this, this attitude of arrogance versus love. Um, there were teachings of the false teachers that resulted in a spiritual arrogance, and, and they, they consequently, they didn't show love to others. And so John spends some significant time talking about how God in his very being is love. God is love. Thus, love for fellow Christians is a mark of true Christianity. And so, why do we study the book of 1 John today? Well, we study it because it's God-breathed. We, we study it because, as, as the scripture says about itself, it is God-breathed. It's useful for correction, for teaching, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness. And so, a, as followers of Jesus, we can learn a lot by how—we uh, can learn a lot 
by studying this book in how to walk in a manner uh, worthy of the gospel and the calling that we have received. Um, because it contains foundational Christian living principles that tell us both who God is, but then how we should respond to who God is. Um, some, some here may even struggle, and this is another great reason to study it. Um, some here may have struggled in the past, or maybe you struggle now with whether or not you can truly know that you are a follower of Jesus. I remind you, I write these things to you so that you may know that you have a relationship with God. John cares deeply about that. And so as, as we engage this book together, I, I pray that God would bring the knowledge of your relationship with him just very clear. Be, because if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Um, First John is a, basically a book on discipleship, okay? It, it, it helps address this basic question, but this foundational question. What does it mean to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength? And how then do we love our neighbor as ourselves? All right, that, that's kind of how First John is, is aimed. And so I invite you into this as we uh, study for the next several, several weeks and uh, invite you to read this book regularly and, and frequently so that you have an idea, not just in your head, but in your heart of what John is trying to communicate. Um, so I, I invite you to stand with me, as is our custom, um, as we read the scripture. And we're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 together. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you so that you may have fellowship along with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Our Father and our King, we open the words of the text this morning and ask you by the working of your Holy Spirit to help them come alive to us in a very real and tangible way. As the Apostle John, he, he heard and he saw, he observed and he touched the word of life, the Messiah. God, we hear his testimony and we want to be people who, who experience eternal life. We also want to be people, God, whose joy wells up within us because of what you have done for us through the one who is eternal life. Thank you, God, for your word this morning. Thank you for teaching us by your spirit. I, I, I pray that you would anoint both my words and our ears to hear what is true and what is right and to walk in it by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so as we study these first couple verses, I want to point out a couple of, uh, of things to you as we go. Um, he starts off by saying what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands. And then he says concerning the word of life. The, the kind of main subject about this whole first few verses is this idea of the word of life, the, the, this person of the word of life. 
But he begins by saying what was from the beginning, and he's hearkening back to something John has already done. Uh, if you remember the first couple verses of John's gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Apart from him, nothing that has been made was made, and in him was life. And that life was the light of the world light of men. Um, as John starts by saying what was from the beginning, he's going back to the origins of when the world was created. And he's, he, he's hearkening back that the one he is talking about, the word of life, is the one who was there in the beginning when he spoke, and it was. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the scripture goes on to say, and God spoke, and it was. And God spoke, and it was. All right? The idea of beginning is the idea of origin here. But John is tying it not, not only with that the one who is from the beginning, who is God, because God spoke, and it was. He's saying, this is one that we have heard, we've seen, we've observed, and we have touched. This is one who, in the words of his gospel... In John 1, I believe it's verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. John is bringing in this idea that not only was Jesus God, but Jesus is also man, fully God, fully man. John makes a personal appeal to his hearers. John is, John is an aging man, but he's a man who had experienced quite a life. He had experienced uh, walking with Jesus, being called by Jesus. He had lived life with him. He had touched his wounds. You know, when Jesus comes back, he says, touch my hands, touch my side. His disciples got to see in very vivid detail that, that their Lord and their Savior had died, but he had also come back to life. John is an eyewitness to this, and if there's ever an eyewitness you want to have, it's John. He's firsthand. He's as core as you possibly get. You're not getting this person's word based upon this person's word based upon this person's word. You're getting it from the person who actually saw Jesus himself, both before and after his crucifixion and death. So the, the word who was from the beginning John says, he, he, he came down and he tabernacled. He dwelt among us. We've heard, we've seen, we've observed, and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. But he says, he says this, not, not only is he the word of life, there, there's an there's a idea of, humani or of, um, of that being a message, but also a, a person. He says, though, that, that that life was revealed in verse 2. He says, that life was revealed, we have seen it, and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father that was revealed to us. In other words, God revealed himself to us in Jesus. And, and I love that he says that life was revealed. He, he doesn't start with we saw it. He starts with that life was revealed. Because one of the things we find is that we would not see God if he had not revealed himself to us. And yet God, the creator of all things, thought of us so much that he would reveal himself to us. Just think for a moment. Look, think back on, on biblical history for a moment. They're in the garden with Adam and Eve, and God comes down and he walks with them. Sin happens. God comes down and he clothes them with animal skins. Um, God's people are taken into slavery. God hears their cry, and he goes and he 
leads them out of Egypt with a strong right hand. And he sets up a tabernacle. First, it's like a pillar of fire. But then he says, Moses, I want you to create this tabernacle because I want to dwell amongst my people. And then, as John's gospel said, the word becomes flesh and he actually puts on skin and bone and he comes and he makes his dwelling among us. The God of the universe revealed himself to man. And that shouldn't make us feel um, prideful. It should actually bow our knee in worship. It should bow our knee in worship that God would reveal himself to us because the one who is high and exalted and lifted up cares for us that much. But John says this, he says, we've seen it. And, and he says, we are martyrs. Remember that word from a couple weeks ago? We are martyrs. We're witnesses to this. If you were to put us on a stand, John is basically saying, I would testify to you that I saw him. You know, so, so help me God. I would testify that I saw him. We're, we're witnesses and we're tellers of this eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. And we're going to spend a, a little bit of time this morning talking about eternal life, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about joy. But just to kind of focus on eternal life here, e eternal life is a big word in John's writings. It happens 17 times in John's gospel. It happens six times in the book of 1 John. And the first time that John talks about the idea of eternal life um, is in a very famous passage. It's John chapter 3. And I have it up here for you. Uh, John chapter 3, uh, he begins by saying, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Okay, um, then he goes on with the very famous verse, for God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. Eternal life is a very important concept to John. And when he's saying this, he's saying this within a conversation. He's talking to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He, he's a teacher of the people. And he's come to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what does it mean to be born again? And he and Jesus have this dialogue back and forth. And they, they, they come to, to this truth. And it's an interesting um, it's an interesting thing that Jesus brings in in verse 14 with Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness. Like, what does born again, what does eternal life have to do with a snake in the wilderness? Um, to, to understand a little bit of where that's coming from, you'd have to turn to Numbers 21. If you want to, you can turn there. If not, I have it up here on the screen for you. Numbers 21 and there's a story, and, and um, the people of Israel have this kind of cycle of God does something amazing, and then they complain, and they grumble, and then they have some judgment because of that, and, and this time is no different. In Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4, it says this, Then they set out from Mount Hor by way of the sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses, and they said, Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? Now, mind you, they're in Egypt in slavery, under cruel slavery. They cried out, but they say, Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread or water. And we detest this wretched food. So on the one hand, they say there's no bread or water. And on the other hand, they say, but we detest this food. Um, 
they're a little ungrateful perhaps. Um, and it says in verse six, then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and they bit them so that many Israelites died. And so, so what's happening here is the Israelites have come and they have complained to God. They're actually directly rebelling against God. Usually they go and they rebel against Moses. They, they're really rebelling against God and Moses, uh, re- really God. And, and there is a measure of judgment for that rebellion that they have. Now, before we're too hard on them, uh, be- before we read the next verse, uh, David, would you show me that, that next picture you have? This is essentially the area that they are in. This is Punan. This is a, a, an area in the wilderness. And so imagine taking a group of people day after day after day in an area kind of like this. It's hot. It's dry. Food is scarce, water scarce. The only reason that they actually are able to have sustenance is because God has graciously given them what they need, and actually even more than what they need. Um, back to verse 7. Um, verse 7 in Numbers 21 says this, The people then came to Moses and they said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Okay, so what about this whole snake on a stick thing? Um, Verse 8 says this, The Lord said to Moses, Moses is interceding for him, he says, Make a snake image mounted on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten, he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. In other words, in in the midst of their rebellion, God has made a provision for them to deal with their sin in a way in which when they look upon the snake that is on a pole, they look upon what God has done, they look upon what God has accomplished for them, and their snake bite, which was going to lead to death, actually gives them new life. Does that make sense? Now, it's not new life in the eternal sense because they would eventually die again, but, but they have new life because what was now a terminal bite is no longer terminal. They look upon the snake, they look upon what God has provided for them, and they receive healing. Now, uh, here's a serpent symbol from Mount Nebo, so maybe this kind of gives you an image of what they're looking on. And one of the things to note is if you keep reading in the, in the Hebrew Bible, you'll find that um, they, they kept this pole with the serpent on it for quite some time, and it actually became a, a, an idol to them. And, and eventually it was destroyed because they, they revered it so much, because they said, uh, you know, basically, this had kind of taken some of the place of God in their life. So it's not, nothing magical about the pole. It's what God was asking them to do in response to their sin. Uh, Israel's sin, in other words, their rebellion against God, led to God making a way for them to be healed from the consequences of sin. And so Jesus essentially says to Nicodemus, the only way to experience being born again is for me to die upon a cross, to pay the penalty for your sin and for your rebellion to have the sinner look upon me because I am the way. I am the only way. I am the truth and I am the life. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So, so that's what's going on in this idea of eternal life in its original um, mention in John's writings. Now, there are other ways that eternal life is mentioned within John's gospel and 1 John. And we'll just kind of pick those for right now. For example, 
in, in John 5, and this would be a great study for you. If you want to read through the Gospel of John, and like every time you see eternal life, circle it, and, and just kind of figure out what's around it and what it's trying to tell you. If, if you were to do that, you'd find some things like this. Um, in John 5, it says that the Scriptures speak to eternal life. Um, they, they testify that Jesus himself is eternal life. Um, another po- portion of it, uh, in John 10, uh, we find out that Jesus holds eternal life securely. In other words, if you are his, nothing can snatch you from his hand. In John 17, he says this about eternal life. He says, to to, to know eternal life is to know the Father and his Son. Um, In 1 John, we find eternal life in chapter 1, verse 2. Eternal life originates with God and is revealed to us. We don't find it without that revelation. In chapter 3, we find out that hating your brother or your sister perpetually is an indication that you haven't experienced or received eternal life. Uh, in John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, we find out that we can know that we have eternal life. And then finally, in, in John chapter 5, verse 20, um, it communicates to us that Jesus Christ is truly God, that he gives eternal life because he himself is eternal life. And, and as I was thinking about it this week, as I was thinking about it this week, I think one of the reasons that John begins with what was from the beginning was because that conveys the idea of eternal. The one who is from the beginning, the, the, the one who is here even before the world was created, only that one is eternal. And when Jesus gives eternal life, he's not just giving a place in the world to come, although he does give that. He's not just giving hope for a future, but he does give that. He's giving his very self. When he says, I want you to experience eternal life, he's saying, in essence, I want you to experience life with me. Life that, that, that is certainly in the world to come, certainly that overcomes death because I have overcome death, but, but, but life that you can experience here and now. I asked, I asked a question. I'm not very much of a, of a Facebook or anything like that person. But I asked a question earlier this week just because I wanted to, to, to see how people would say, you know, how would you describe eternal life? And, and I, I really appreciated all of the responses because they all brought a, a little different nuance. Um, and, and I love what one of them said. It was, it was someone from our church who was describing how a, a 12-year-old uh, in, our, in our children's ministry years ago had described eternal life. And the way she described it was this, totally connect to God in a permanent loving relationship. And, and I absolutely love that because it really makes it tangible and visible from, from my eyes at least. Totally connected to God in a permanent loving relationship. See, eternal life is more than something to look forward to in the age to come. It's more than a commodity to value. When Jesus gives us eternal life, he wants us to be in a permanent and and, um, connected with him in a loving relationship. When Jesus died for you, he did not just make eternal life possible. He said, I want to live through you. I want to meet every spiritual need in your life. I want to know you as a best friend. And by the way, I will keep you secure and I will walk with you in the hills and the valleys that we experience in this life. So, question for you this morning. Have you trusted Jesus for eternal life? Have you experienced the assurance of knowing that one day you will be with him? But have you also experienced the joy of walking with him 
day by day today. Now, I, I mentioned the word joy because verse 4 of the first chapter of John's gospel says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, joy, in essence, is the experience of gladness. And, and John cares a lot about joy as well. Uh, he mentions it in each one of his letters. In 1 John 4, he says uh, that our joy may be complete. In 2 John, he says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper or ink. Instead, I... I I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Joy for John, I think, is in part encompassed with fellowship. Um, I, I kind of skipped over verse 3 because we're going to talk about fellowship next week. And so we'll tie that into that study. Um, but, but John cares a lot about fellowship. And fellowship both with the father and with his son, but also the fellowship of the community of faith. He, he cares deeply about that. Um, because they're all interconnected. But in, in Third John, he writes this. He says, I have no greater joy, in verse 4, than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John wants us to experience joy that is complete. He wants us to experience the joy that comes from the fellowship of God's people gathered together, um, celebrating who God is and what God has done. But he also wants them to experience joy as they walk in the truth. In other words, uh, I think this is maybe why, uh, I didn't look this up to be sure, but uh, I think this is maybe one of the backgrounds to, um, to that hymn, when, you, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his love, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. Trust and obey. A couple words in there, but he says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy or to experience joy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Because hearing the word of God and obeying it is a part of what it means to be totally connected to God in a permanent, loving relationship. And so, I asked you a couple minutes ago, have you trusted Jesus for eternal life? And then, let me ask you this question. If you have, do you experience joy? Do you experience joy? Joy is one of the things that goes first for me. I, it doesn't take much, you know, a, a flat tire, bad coffee. <laughs> it doesn't take much to rob myself of joy. But for John, joy is so much bigger than what is maybe more surface level for us. It, it's, it's experiencing joy by walking with God and just enjoying God's presence knowing that when you follow his word and his will, he, he smiles and he says, it's my child. You're reflecting me because of how you have just interacted in a way that's loving, even though it was tough. Do you experience joy this morning? To what measure are you experiencing joy this morning? We're going to move to communion in just a minute. And and there's, there's four cups within the Passover um, celebration. Uh, within the Passover Seder, the first cup is this. It's the cup of sanctification. The second cup is the cup of plagues. The third cup is the cup of redemption. And that's the cup that, that I believe Jesus is holding up when he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Uh, this is the cup of redemption because he's about to go die on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. Um, but the fourth cup is the cup of praise. 
or the cup of joy. It, 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 it's joy for redemption, and it's also joy that God will bring to fruition, God will bring to consummation new heavens and a new earth, a place where there is no more weeping or crying, a, a place in which love and joy abound in a way that maybe I can't even begin to comprehend right now, but in a way that I can begin to experience right now because of the presence of Christ in me. So, I want to invite our worship team to come up, and I also want to give each of us a moment here to just pause and to consider the question, do I have eternal life? And if you don't have eternal life this morning, eternal life is simply this, to believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay for your sin. And that by believing, you have life in his name. By, by, by essentially looking upon not your own sin or your own, um, your own way, but by looking not even upon a snake raised in the middle of the desert, but by looking upon the Son of God who is lifted up for you. If you want to experience eternal life this morning, you can simply pray to the Lord and ask him for forgiveness for your sin you can say, Lord, I believe that Jesus died and rose again for me. And you can experience eternal life. And, it, and if you want to do that, I encourage you to do it now. And I'd love to talk with you later. But if you've experienced eternal life, are you experiencing joy? Are you experiencing joy this morning in what God has done for you and in what God wants to do for you? I'll give you about a minute right here as we, as we just prepare our hearts to receive communion. And I, I invite you to confess any known sin in your life. Um, and I invite you to ask God to show you what it means to walk out the joy that you have in Christ today. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check out fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.